welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya, the Managing Director of K Street Capital. And today's episode is going to be two-part. Um, so we're going to be talking about the impacts of AI on the travel industry. And we're also going to be uh, sort of working off of a little bit of what we talked about in our last episode around fundraising. We're going to be talking about term sheets and uh, trends we're seeing in term sheets given the, the, the recent changes in the VC environment. Um, and we've got perspectives from three incredible people, uh, only, only one on the video, but, but everybody here on the call, so you'll hear from everybody. Um, we've got Hans Miller, who's one of our CEO founders of our, one of our portfolio companies, Airside Mobile, um, or formerly he was at Airside Mobile, and, uh, and we've got Howard Cass, who's one of our investors at K Street, who also formerly was at uh, held executive level roles at uh, Clear, U.S. Airways, um, American Airlines. He'll introduce himself in a second. And we also have Oleg, who's one of our co-investors and, and, and a friend of K Street, who is the founder CEO of another company in the travel space called Visa HQ. So I'm going to start by having you guys do some introductions, and then um, we'll kick it off. So Hans, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Uh, so my journey uh, to working with K Street Capital actually started a long time ago uh, when I was uh, pulled into the response to 9-11 and, and helped set up uh, TSA and, and a lot of the airport security and launched me in a career in aviation, uh, specifically looking at airports. And so since then, I uh, worked on a number of projects, including uh, mobile boarding passes, creating the U.S. standard and rolling that out in, in the U.S., and then launching Airside way back in 2009. And uh, we launched multiple products and finally hit upon Mobile Passport, which was a big success for us and, and ultimately led to an exit. So, and, uh, and K Street played an important role, both in terms of funding and also in terms of mentoring us and, and guiding us uh, on our journey. Yeah, very happy to have been part of that ride, Hans, for the past few years and congrats on the exit. Thank you. Um, Howard? Uh, hey, Paige, it's great to be here today. Thank you. Uh, so I also, uh, I think Hans and I were hired at TSA to stand up TSA, maybe the ultimate startup. Uh, yeah. the same and like shortly after 9-11, I think we were both hired in, um, still in 2001. Um, and so after I did uh, my work at TSA, I uh, went on to work uh, at two major U.S. airlines, U.S. Airways and American, and spent almost 15 years uh, running global regulatory affairs and, and really getting my hands into lots of different parts of the airport uh, and in the airline environment. Um, and then after that, I, I kind of got into the startup mode. Um, I, I joined Clear at an executive level and, and spent a couple, a couple plus years there and just learned a whole lot about travel and technology uh, and marrying that with all that I had done. Um, and then sort of the pandemic hit and I found there were still a lot of companies that were, were trying to get into the travel and the technology space and, and, and maybe even accelerated because of uh, the pandemic. And um, I started to advise them and, and help them as they wanted to build out government platforms, commercial deals, regulatory help where they needed it. Um, and so all that was going along. And at the same time, I wanted to find a way to start to invest. And uh, Paige, I got introduced to you through some mutual friends and uh, I've been you know, happy to be part of K Street for the last two plus years as well. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Howard, for joining us. And Oleg? Hey, Paige. Great to be here. Um, uh, I got introduced to Paige by Mike Malloy. So uh, uh, 
wearing two hats, same as Paige, uh, founder and investor. And uh, that's, we saw a lot of similarities, uh, spoke uh, more more than we should probably. So, <laughs> but it was a very engaging conversation. Uh, I am uh, uh, a founder of this HQ. I've been investing in startups since uh, 2017. I guess the anecdotal story that this HQ is still self-financed. So we, uh, we are on the uh, that bootstrapping journey for the past 20 years, uh, but uh, I'm very active uh, in uh, this uh, uh, in, in in DC in the travel tech space and uh, AI space. So uh, happy to share my my knowledge and experience with everyone. Great, thank you, Oleg. I think this will be a really interesting conversation with all all four of us here, especially the three of you and what you know about the industry. Um, so why don't we start there? Let's let's start with the travel industry right now and and the impacts of AI. And anyone can kick this off, but I I'm just curious what you guys are seeing um, in the space and what are some of the trends that have come out of it. I mean, I can. Unless somebody else wants to jump in, I can start off. I mean, you know, it's funny we talk about AI, and I think in some sense, um, you know, what is AI exactly, right? And and Airlines for years now have been using algorithms and uh, for dynamic pricing in ways that perhaps even the operators of the system don't fully um, understand how the algorithms come up with what they do. Um, having said that, I think there's three areas where we're likely to see AI really impact the travel industry, one of which is around uh, operations, uh, not just pricing, but air traffic control, ground ops, things of that nature that I think will become very much impacted uh, going forward. It may take a little longer than some of the consumer spaces, but there's huge potential savings uh, on the operational side. Second, I think there's a, a big opportunity around itinerary planning on the consumer side. I mean, we've seen over the last 10, 15 years, so many startups take a run at create personalized experiences for itineraries. Uh, I think AI is is well positioned to disrupt that uh, space on its own. I think there's some interesting questions about what the consequences of that might be uh, when you look at something like what Waze did to some certain side streets. Uh, and then I think you know third, you know, really around what other revenue optimization areas are we likely to see AI start to apply, not just in air travel but on the ground, hotels customized offers, pricing that's dynamic, combinations of features and products that, that maybe would not have been packaged together before. And Hans, was it impacting Airside before you left? I mean, were you sort of seeing that or <laughs> sort of like pre? <laughs> no, not, not really. Um, not for what we were doing. It was, you know, uh, no. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, Howard, Oleg, I'm curious what you guys are seeing. Yeah, I uh, I think Hans has got I think Hans has got it right. Um, I would just add a couple of points. One, in addition to the ground ops and all of that, I think maintenance and the maintenance of aircraft uh, AI is going to play a huge role in that. And, and literally, I mean, there's already a lot of software that today predicts when something's going to need maintenance, but that'll only get better and stronger, uh, and and I think drive a lot of efficiencies in the maintenance area for airlines. Um, itinerary planning is what everybody's talking about. Lots of folks are rushing into the space. Uh, and, and if you just go onto chat GP, for example, you can um, 
play around with it and create your own itineraries. Um, I've had a lot of fun with it. Um, I've argued with uh, Chad about whether or not I can drive 1500 miles in two days though. Uh, so there's definitely some work to be done. What What's going to be more interesting, I think, is what happens um, after people create the itineraries and, and sort of the fulfillment and the bookings uh, and getting that to marry up. Um, I don't think we're there yet. I think lots of people are working on it. Um, and I think it's interesting because some believe that uh, this will... Uh, you know, empower the OTAs, the online travel agencies, because they're going to ultimately put it all together. And I think it's going to lead to a greater democratization of, of bookings. And, and literally anybody or any organization will be able to find ways to customize experiences for their users and potentially fulfill that as well. So I think it's going to be a really disruptive process. And there'll be some winner, there'll definitely be some winners and losers and, and a shakeout that uh, inevitably comes just as there was when uh, you know, after the internet was born and the rush to online travel agencies, not everybody made it, but uh, those that did um, have prospered. Uh, so I think those are the two big areas that uh, there'll be a lot of AI in, in the coming days and weeks and months. That's great. And Oleg, curious if you have anything to add and, and, and either way, would love your perspective on this from sort of the... the yeah, by all means. Yeah. By all means. I mean, we are uh, deeply working on the patent uh, uh, we authored in uh, 2017. So, uh, and I guess the, uh, just to speak about AI, we should touch on the definitions, right? So there are, it's, it, it derives from LLMs, from large language models. That's, that's the key right now, I guess, for, for this specific discussion. And uh, um, they're not new LLMs. I mean, it's, they've been around the block for, um, you know, over 20 years, right? So basically any translation that you see, that's the large language models. Um, there is uh, uh, the whole uh, fascination and the unlock came with the open AI introducing generative AI, so to speak, right? So, but it's very different from AGI, from artificial general intelligence. Uh, we are not there yet. I don't know when we're going to be there. And obviously, there are some doomers uh, that are already discussing possible uh, fallout uh, of uh, AGI. But uh, overall, I think uh, uh, with the specifically LLMs and applicable to the travel industry, we will see first uh, is going to be the client services. That's probably the easiest uh, for LLMs to solve where you can have... Uh, uh, algorithms uh, helping users to navigate uh, anything, right? So it's still a poorly constructed interface. So if you look back to uh, Lola, for instance, the one of the co-founders of Kayak trying to use uh, chatbot, uh, essentially, you know, same LLM, right? But uh, it didn't quite work out because uh, it's much easier to use Kayak application on your screen and spend several seconds booking the trip as opposed to typing a lot of words or even saying a lot of words to get to the final destination. So uh, there are some challenges, but at the same time, I think uh, there are enormous opportunities in this space. And how is it, how are you thinking about it in terms of your company and maybe share a little bit more about what you guys do at Visa HQ because it's not just visas, it's so many other things. And I'll, I'll be happy to. So the, uh, actually, we uh, the name of the patent is Artificial Intelligence System for Custom Travel Documents Processing. So I'm very glad, you know, we took that approach uh, and uh, 
it covers pretty much uh, everything. So back then, it, again, it was 2017. Nobody could even uh, predict uh, the COVID-19 uh, back then. And uh, uh, we basically went from visa requirements to entry requirements uh, right now because uh, you not necessarily need a visa to enter the country. However, you need a, a PCR test, right? So to be negative. And it must be a specific test or you need uh, a vaccination card uh, and it must be very specific vaccine for uh, it largely depends on the citizenship and destination and we can see still a lot of volatility in terms of entry requirements and that's actually where LLMs is uh, helpful so uh, we are digging the tunnel from two sides uh, one on collecting all this information and that's where we train our own a large language model to essentially go around every sources possible, Reddit, Twitter, consular websites, uh, all the government websites and uh, work with the information. So we are talking about a massive amount of unstructured data that our LLM turns into structured data so we can present it further into either using the APIs to our clients or to general public. So that's one side of the tunnel. The other side of the uh, tunnel is uh, front-end client services where users come to us. And right now we have essentially one operator servicing one uh, traveler. And uh, that's about to change. So now we will have uh, algorithms helping uh, augmenting our human operators. So instead of one-on-one -on -one ratio, we are planning to start with the one-to-five ratio where one human agent uh, that uh, knows how to answer those questions uh, uh, monitors five concurrent uh, uh, relays of uh, algorithms of our L. And we are using ChatGPT right now, but we will most likely end up training our own uh, LLM. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a very good model, but uh, it was uh, trained on uh, 45 terabytes of data and uh, including, you know, Shakespeare, space exploration. So we don't need all that to answer a question about uh, uh, cross-border mobility. So that's essentially our way. And I guess uh, we call it layer zero, where we collect the entry requirements layer one, where it's front end layer two is going to be our back office. And uh, our end game is kind of connecting everything all together. So once that tunnel connects and uh, um, we hope uh, that uh, it happens in the near future, then we will bring everything under one umbrella. Thanks for sharing that. I think it's super interesting for your business, especially because it really is one where you can see the gains in terms of like, I, I remember before, like pre-COVID, I, I, I can't remember how many employees you have, but it was like hundreds, right? And 220. I, and yeah, 220. And now you could rebuild that with, what did you say, like one, one fifth of it maybe? Or maybe not everyone's in customer facing. So maybe it's more than that, but significantly, significantly more efficient business model. Yeah, and it's about scalability. So the plan is to actually scale it to, again, millions and uh, billions of users potentially. So it's uh, this with the, we build everything with the scalability in mind. Very cool. So I guess Howard, Hans, or any of you guys, I, I'm curious how you're thinking about, especially I'm thinking of you, Howard, because of your experience with Clear, but do you see the forms of AI helping the airport process in terms of um, some of the services that are out there, kind of like, like Airside Mobile was doing, Hans? I know you had an exit sort of before this revolution took off, but 
Um, and, and from your time at Clear, uh, Howard, um, I'm wondering if you have any perspectives there. Yeah, um, I've been thinking a lot about that. And I think where AI is really going to show up is not necessarily on the, on the front end with the passengers, whether it's airside or clear, but in the security screening process itself, right? Better AI, better algorithms, essentially, should lead to better detection capabilities. And if you get to that point, and, and TSA, I know, is already working on this. If you get to that point where the algorithms are better, then maybe some of the restrictions that are put on customers when they fly about, you know, water, you know, uh, the amount of liquid you can bring and so forth can be over time eliminated. They're already, they're already testing some of that. And that, that mm -hmm. it, it promises to only get better uh, as, as AI, you know, gets more mature and, and comes online in, in more and more places. So I'm excited about it from a keeping us all more secure and safe as we move around and, and as we travel. So that's how I see it uh, being most impactful, at least initially. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I would agree with Howard. There's there's a huge potential on the security side. I think that's something that has been dreamed about now for for over 20 years, right? The ability to sort of understand the unique risk level of an individual when they're traveling or, do, frankly, doing anything else. Um, raises a whole pile of questions that can be very uncomfortable to think about, right? Uh, how much information are you tapping into with the AI risk agent, right? Uh, so I think all those questions are going to come up. I think that the potential on the security side is there. I get a little nervous just about unintended consequences, totally separate unintended consequence. But one of the things I think about is, you know, before COVID, Amsterdam was so crowded, they were thinking about essentially making the whole city on a reservation basis, right? Wow. If you want to visit Amsterdam, it was being talked about. I can imagine a world where an AI uh, travel planner essentially, you know, creates massive uh, tourist attractions out of previously unknown places, right? I found this amazing little village and all of a sudden it becomes crazy. I think we run the risk of unintended consequences also in the airport with some of these things. We just don't know yet how these things are going to play out. I think that, yes, on the security front, if you're looking at individual data, it's going to take a while. If you're looking at what what am I looking at on the screen, that's already been, you know, that's, that's an evolving process that's already been underway for quite some time. And, you know, where to draw the line between machine learning and AI, I don't know. That's not something I'm smart enough to be able to determine. But some of these things are, are well underway. Others, I think, are going to be problematic from a policy point of view. If you're talking about inside the airport, which is such a sensitive space with so many different stakeholders. Absolutely. And, and just to kind of uh, chime in on, uh, uh, you know, future versus present uh, or even past, uh, uh, let's say uh, uh, facial recognition models, they've been in place uh, forever. Yeah. And uh, especially like here, obviously there is uh, uh, privacy is a very sensitive subject, right? So, so we are fortunate in that regard. So I remember in 2018 flying to Beijing and uh, probably wearing my uh, caps when they won the Stanley Cup, my hat, right? So with the Stanley Cup and uh, the moment I got off the plane, I was asked to take my hat off because obviously, and they pointed yeah. at the camera that the cameras need to see my face and like, ah, I'm like, okay, I got it. That's the rules of engagement. Yeah, I mean, it's gonna be, 
I was at TSA, one of the things we looked into was how do you know that the algorithm you're dealing with or going forward, the AI agent or AI technology that you're working with is in fact the best version for the use case that you're looking at. And I think that there will be a need for an organization, maybe it's a business, maybe it's a government institution, maybe it's a nonprofit, um, like Underwriters Laboratory, where you can have you know annual or quarterly shootouts between different algorithm developers. I mean, I suspect in the next two years, we're gonna have 5,000 different companies offering AI solutions of some sort, right? How do I know? How do I choose? I'm, I'm Delta Airlines. How do I know which one's best for me? And, and it's going to be constantly changing. The pace of innovation is going to be so high. There's going to be a real need for someone or some group to uh, be able to evaluate and provide comparative performance data uh, on these solutions, I think. Yeah, I, I'm just uh, really quick. So there is already a solution that yep. calls ref, uh, um, reflection framework, right? So where one AI tests another AI as a, as a, and says it was good for human or bad, and uh, that AI learns. So basically, it's a constant loop between two different LLMs, <laughs> and uh, one is saying, "Yeah, that was good." No, that wasn't. So, and they, I mean, uh, you should see it in action. It's just it's it's mesmerizing. Yeah, it's going to become a source of like... pride for companies, right? So. In um, like in the biometric space, the companies that have the best facial recognition software, and I think yes. it's, there are organizations that test for it. I don't. I, I want to say NSF is one of the national science. S and T, DHS yeah. Science and Technology is an annual yep. shootout. That's right. Exactly, and, and people win that or, or get us, you know, come in second or third place, and and they they market off of that. And so I think Hans, you're, you're exactly right. Those organizations are either going to uh, already exist and will evolve into AI or they will be created and companies will brag about their AI algorithm and all that. But I, I just want to go back for just a second, if I can, to the airport conversation and, and the stakeholders and all of that. And like, I, I think that AI is and, and it's evidenced by the fact that the White House held a meeting about it today. Uh, you know, on, on AI is, is going to raise all kinds of uh, societal questions, unintended consequences, things like that. But it just feels like more and more in the airports, people are getting used to biometrics. They're getting used to new ways to um, keep them secure and continue to move them faster. And I think that AI, at least in the travel setting in the airports, and, and people are used to you know all this innovation going on in the airports. I think it's really exciting because if we can you know, use AI in the security uh, space to make sure that, you know, what you're putting through as your carry-on isn't dangerous and that you're not a threat. And, and I think people will make those trades that they may not make in other parts of their life, but that they, they're willing to do and travel for a, a good experience because no one likes standing in line when they're traveling and to know they're safe and secure. So I think there's a, a huge upside and a lot of opportunity. Yeah, go ahead. I can agree with you, Howard. I just think I think it'll it will come to market faster in area where the consequences for a screw up are lower, right? Uh, yeah, potent well, sure, right. I mean, we're already seeing that with all the you know, just type in itinerary planning on the internet now, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, exactly. I search, searching, looking at the image of your bag is one thing. Going through your credit report is another. Sure. <laughs> for sure, I I agree with that. I mean, you can always extrapolate it to a doomsday scenario in uh, either of those scenarios. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, well, I think we should move on to the, the other topic just in the interest of time, but one last thing here. Are there any really cool companies that you guys have seen in the space that are using AI for, besides maybe your company, uh, uh, Oleg, that's already sort of, sort of starting to think about this, but I'm curious if you guys have come across any others that are worth sharing. So I've got, I'm um, doing some work with a company called Trippian, which before AI was a thing and, and, and kind of entered the consciousness of us all, uh, they were already building itineraries and, um, you know, sort of helping um, suppliers uh, or, or, or organizations, I should say, really help people curate experiences. And, and they're, uh, they're trying to figure out now with, with you know, the, the explosion of AI, you know, where to go with it and what to do. And, and so I've been I've really enjoyed working with them on it. And, uh, you know, hopefully the, they have a long runway, I think. Visa HQ. Yeah. Visa HQ. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And uh, Actually, uh, I'll, uh, uh, this is something not uh, AI related, but very interesting. This is my portfolio company. Uh, uh, it uh, rebranded from uh, TripScout to at hotel, at as a sign in your uh, email. So, uh, and uh, the reason it's at hotel, because they consolidated uh, over, I think like 46 million uh, followers on Instagram. So that's the handle on Instagram and uh, when they approached me for for the seed check uh, the idea was very simple they said we wanted to do something what uh, TripAdvisor did with the text search right so back in the day when they optimize everything we do we 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 think the sentiment is uh, shifting towards the visual search and, and uh, I totally bought that idea I think uh, they were 100% right so and by the way that's why I, I still think again it's a conventional approach I mean, of course, uh, uh, the, there is a societal trend, right? So to spend uh, time on uh, Instagram or TikTok, and that's exactly what they've been uh, uh, utilizing. And uh, so visual searches, so you can book a hotel, uh, specific room, right? So uh, by seeing everything, seeing those short videos, uh, short stories, right? About the, the whatever, the restaurant, the, the pool, and uh, um, uh, everything in between. So uh, I still think uh, there are other trends, not just, you know, like very hot out of the oven AI related. Uh, and uh, I'm optimistic to see what uh, they can do optimizing and using algorithm just with the video creation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the other area that that is going to emerge maybe faster than I anticipated is AI defense, right? How do, how do you, or countermeasures, right? So how do you, how do you counteract a threat to your business or a threat to your organization from AI? I think that's gonna be a very interesting field in the next three to five years. There was an article uh, in uh, so Palantir. They obviously yeah. <laughs> jumped on it, uh, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. immediately. And there were, I think it was Vice, and they did the article uh, yeah, that uh, Palantir is promise, uh, promising us uh, one of those weaponized uh, AI system. But don't worry, it will be ethical. And I, I, I oh yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. No comment. Exactly. That's where I'm going to leave it. No comment. We'll have to bring one of our investors at, at, at Palantir on our next episode and see what they have to say about that. <laughs> um, cool. Well, thank you guys. Let's um, let's skip over to talk about term sheets for a second. 
So I wanted to talk about, about what's happening in the VC environment with term sheets. And I'll just, I, I think most of our audience knows this, but for those who don't, like a term sheet is basically a, a, a legal doc that you give an investor if you're a founder, or that more commonly the investor gives it to you and it outlines how much they're going to invest in your company and what the terms are, basically. And there are some terms that are standard, some that are not, and some that sort of change over time depending on the environment. Um, and we're starting to see that now. I'll just say for us, in, at least at K Street, we invest usually in deals that are either they're priced rounds like equity or they are safes or they are convertible notes. So the terms I'm referring to are usually in, in those spaces. And we're VC investors, so we're not, you know, we're not private equity investors per se, although there are a lot of VCs that are starting to look like a PE firms, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, that being said, I guess uh, before we get into some of the terms, I mean, Obviously, we're seeing valuations dropping. We're seeing uh, discount rates being higher on convertible notes and safes. We're seeing sometimes companies don't want to take what you know what's called a down round, where you have a lower valuation, uh, and instead of that, we're seeing much higher liquidation preferences that investors are demanding just to make up for that not having a down round, but still getting some protection. So I guess I'll stop there. And I'm curious what you guys are saying, and and then and then we can get into some of the specifics of some of these terms. I mean, I, it's been a little while, right? We just kind of, uh, you know, last year we went through a, you know a bunch of complicated maneuverings to lead to exit, but the, the market environment is going to drive valuations. The market environment is going to drive discount rates. What I feel that I learned from the experience with Airside. Uh, is that simplicity in the term sheet is as important, if not more, than the actual numbers. And that may sound crazy, but over time, if I look back about the amount of effort and distraction level and pain and suffering that went along with some of the negotiations around you know, this or that or complications and various subletters or side letters and whatnot. For my, my counsel to both investors and founders is avoid that stuff because it's better to take a, a lower valuation uh, or, or higher discount rate or whatever, keep it clean and just move on because uh, that other stuff can, can lead to so much wasted time. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I, I will just say that uh, I'm also I'm starting to see some weird term sheets out there. And I think that's sort of like on the complicated side of what yeah. you're talking about. Hans. And yeah. I think, you know, for, for venture capital investors have been doing this for a while. They don't they don't they don't do that. Right. Like they have reputations right. to uphold. They're looking at the same terms they're, they're they're looking for the same types of companies and returns from those term, term sheets. So the only really things that are changing are the, the kind of things I mentioned, those economic terms, the the actual valuation they're willing to pay, you know, the price they're willing to pay, the the discount, which also can be, you know, it could be a higher valuation with a bigger discount to achieve the same effect and liquidation preferences, you know, increasing just for, for downside protection. But other than that, you know, most of the other terms we, we normally see standard unless it's a weird investor that's like a private equity investor or a non-traditional yeah. venture investor or like an inexperienced angel investor maybe or whatever. They're always trying to re require odd things that they may be used to from their own experience in some other, you know, investment ring, but, but don't really apply in the VC world. So 
but yeah. but you know, I mean, the, the reality is interest rates are higher, right? And and the 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 flow of free money has dried up. And as as founders, there needs to be some recognition that you're better off working with an experienced investor. Um, you know, we had uh, in addition to having K Street, which was wonderful on our on our team, we also had Bain Capital Ventures lead uh, our B round, and that was a a great experience. Yeah. And and I you know my my advice would be better to work with a experienced team with a clean term sheet than try to optimize every last dollar on the valuation. Exactly. So um, just for fun, because I knew we were going to be talking about this, I did go into chat, uh, you know, AI this morning and create <laughs> oh, a no. um, And I came back with about 12 different ideas, 12 different things, basic stuff, you know, board of directors, the right to appoint a member, anti-dilution protection, dividends, um, it said you don't get any. Um, and it was incredibly clean, incredibly straightforward, all plain English. And while it's certainly not, you know, no, no lawyer would look at this and go, great, we're done. Um, it actually provides a really good checklist and a roadmap for what you will, you know, what probably needs to be in there or, or things to think about at least. Um, and the whole thing took about three minutes and obviously I didn't pay lawyers to do it. So, um, it was really interesting. I guess my question though, Hans and, and Paige and, and, and all of you, you guys have more experience with this. I completely agree, right? Particularly as a as somewhat of a recovering lawyer, uh, you know, the less legalese and, and the more straightforward you can make things, the better for everybody. But in a world where, you know, money's no longer free and, and investors are looking for different things, sometimes economic terms, um, you know, priorities. I think Hans mentioned some of those. Like, isn't there almost an inherent tension and in, in, in a world where the where the macro environment's more complicated to keep it clean and to keep it straightforward? The answer is in your question. So, uh, the uh, chat GPT model was the cutoff time was 21, so it's two years old. So basically, it was pre-trained before macro conditions uh, start changing what we see now. But uh, uh, my point is, it's uh, uh, it's a different ball game right now, right? So, uh, and uh, liquidity is obviously shrinking. So, and I think over the course of the next two months, May, June, we will see liquidity being completely sucked out of the market. So, which uh, obviously just gonna drastically um, make it uh, even more difficult, right, to find one. And uh, I think as a result of that, uh, what we see right now, I see a huge explosion of secondary activity. And uh, also the CPE is going after public markets because uh, they look at uh, some, you know, we mentioned Palantir. I think they're trading now like 70, 80%, right? So off. So like pretty pretty steep discount. So uh, yeah, there is an explosion. There is an explosion of platforms trying uh, to facilitate secondary transactions, and uh, I, I I think this trend will continue for a while. It probably will, and I think Howard, to your point, I think there are definitely you know there's sacrifices that founders are going to have to make right now. Unfortunately, when if they are in a position where they don't have the cash flow or the ability to bootstrap and sort of get through this environment to get the terms that they want, you know, because there are so many other, other, other non-traditional venture term sheets that are coming around the table for venture to what would normally be a venture backed firm. And I think those sacrifices are, you know, we're already starting to, to see it. By the way, there's a company called Tome. I wonder if you've heard of it, Howard. 
It's a, it's, it's a, I, I mean, we haven't used it yet, but it is a company that sort of uses AI to summarize contract terms for angels and VCs, basically like a faster, cheaper, like more intuitive way to review a term sheet than, than actually paying a human to do it. And I think that's kind of cool because for us, we don't, we, we do have legal counsel, obviously, but we try to review most of the terms ourselves, and we, we use our legal counsel only for anything out of the ordinary. And this seems like it would save us just a ton of time. So we just wanted to share a really cool company that I found recently. No, really that's cool. awesome, right? And the law firms are starting to, I've already seen um, AI companies that are targeting law firms to sort of simplify their workload and, and make that happen. So eventually, you know, your AI will talk to the law firm AI and they'll exchange data and they'll, you know, each side will get a spit out of, of what it says. It'll be fascinating. I mean, for, forget travel. You want to talk about Correct. AI disrupting stuff. The right. Field is is yeah. in for a major disruption. I think for I think it's going to be it real. Has, it has already started, and it, it didn't start with AI. You know, uh, speaking with AI, it's it started with general counsel speaking to any law firm and saying, "Them, hey guys, guess what? There will be less and less contract work. So yeah. uh, coming because we have sure. AI working on it now. So that, that's already kind of old." Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the macro side effect of all this is that the, the the increase in wealth disparity or income disparity is going to go through the roof, right? Yeah, <laughs> we already took care of manufacturing with with automation, and <laughs> now we're going to take care of the information worker sector by you know with AI. So it's going to yeah. be painful, I think, for for folks that believe that you know their occupations were going to go on forever. Yes, I I would agree with that. That is the downside, but I think. It'll be painful in the beginning, but in the long run of humanity, it will be better because eventually people are going to learn. Like your one job that you have, you have to be always innovating and evolving as a human at all times if you want to 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 continue to move forward in the world. And I think that mindset may not be as common right today as it as it will be hopefully, you know, centuries from now. But um, going back to the term sheets, I, I guess I'm wondering, like, like Hans, when you sold you you sold your company last year, so that was mm -hmm. right, uh, maybe right around when some of these trends were starting to happen. Other mm -hmm. than the ones we talked about, and I mean, you said you got a clean term sheet, and and you were working with Bain, and but but uh, I'm I'm curious if there was anything odd or unusual or like that came up that surprised you in that whole process. I mean, I think we we definitely felt the pressure of of falling valuations, right? So we. We were probably six months outside of the optimal window, <laughs> right? Yep. So, um, and that's the way it goes, right? You sort of look at it and go, okay, well, it could have been a lot worse, but, you know, it could have been better too. Um, we, we did see a lot of pressure around uh, cash during the, during the acquisition phase of, the, of our journey. Um, and... You know, when you're, when it's a partial equity transaction, how do you value the the equity of the other party? Uh, how do they value your equity? I mean, it, it gets it's a very it, when interest rates are changing and and equity values are all over the place. Uh, it's a very done. It's hard negotiation. Uh, so we saw that, um, but we tried really hard. I think we learned over the years that keeping things as clean and simple as possible. Um, is the way to go, and and because yeah. I, I I've already said everything I had to say about that. Other than yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And speaking of the cash situation, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of companies out there that are that are going through a similar situation where they're trying to exit or raise money. They need to uh, to do that to to continue to get to sort of the next level. And there's a lot of VCs that are or, or investors in general that are somewhat taking advantage of that and and giving exclusive term sheets, right? So you can't if you have an exclusive term sheet, it means you can't be looking at you can't be you can't be in talks with other investors during that time because that's sort of the time when that company or 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 investor is doing diligence on your company and they don't want to waste their time doing that if they're not going to be able to get the deal in the end of it but if you're running out of cash and you and you get to the end of that 30 45 day period and you don't have any cash left then what are you going to do anyway you just have to take the terms that are kind of handed to you so yeah yeah we we have experience with that as well (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, in that case, the only, the only, and this isn't really about the term sheet. It's really about picking your investor, right? Mm-hmm. And and finding an investor that believes in your vision. At which point, the you know, the numbers become, I won't say secondary exactly, but there's there's more leeway on that. And someone who believes in your business is less likely to. Uh, push it to the absolute last dollar to get a better term because the reality, if you're an investor and you're doing that to a company, what you're doing is taking the management team off track from what they should be focused on. You're reducing the overall value of the company in the near term. You're also reducing in the long term because you're burning brain cells for that team that cannot be replaced. And it's, it's, it's obviously hardball tactics. But I think in the in the long run, if you're going to be in the investing game for the long run, it's absolutely a stupid move because you're hundred percent destroying value in the company you're investing in. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's so true. Investors, you, all you really have at the end of the day in the long run is your reputation, and and you don't mm-hmm. like the term sheets. They don't matter if you're dealing with good people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the problem is that a lot of you know early stage or first time founders, for example, you may not know that you don't know the investor that well, right? At the mm-hmm. beginning, maybe, and they may not end up being a good person. So, I would just advise all founders to understand their term sheets and and, and yeah. do your homework on that because yeah. it is important. But also, investors have to understand when when you push a company into the red zone on cash uh, through hardball negotiating tactics, what you're doing is is causing long-term damage because the team they may not know the specifics but they're not stupid they're going to figure out there's stress they're going to figure out there's money problems you're you're going to be spending time with vendors on accounts payable that you normally wouldn't have to spend time on there's all this cascading waterfall impact of that negotiation it's just not worth it uh Mm -hmm. in my opinion obviously i'm biased i'm a founder but that would be perhaps the side of that negotiation and, and hardball term sheet that investors may not necessarily see or, or, or it's a learning curve. But they should. And I, and, <laughs> they should. And they should because, you know, being, being, a, and if, and I was a founder, obviously you guys know for, for a number of years and then, and then turned into an investor and knowing that, like I've seen so many deals where this happened and you just, this value was destroyed by the person buying the company or the investor investing in the round. They lost, you know, parts of their team, customers, things that they were supposed, that was supposed to be part of what they were purchasing, you know? Yeah. And so you ends up in the hospital, stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we see that all the time. We more the than time. I would like to admit. 
Yeah. So I'm curious, right? Like I, I understand what you guys are saying and, and I agree with a lot of it. Um, but at some point, the the investors gotta have a way to, you know, maybe protect the investment, right? Or or to make sure that if there are changes that the investor wants to see in the way the company is run or or you know, cost cutting, et cetera. Like so, you know, what What's I mean, maybe it's not what's better, but, you know, what's the balance between, you know, the, the, the difficult term sheet versus, you know, micromanagement? I mean, how do you how do you kind of reconcile, you know, at the end of the day, you should both be both the investor and the founders should be aligned on on, on moving forward and how to do it. But but that obviously involves trade offs, whether it's, it comes at the term sheet stage or it comes in the management of the company, right? Like, like how do you think yeah. about that? Uh, I, after after, you know, I, I spent 14 years building our site. I have a right. violent reaction to that, which is trying to uh, tell the CEO how to cost cut or or what to do or who to hire is destructive. And, and you have to, you know, in my opinion, best venture investing is is high risk. You're making a bet. You're really betting on the people as much as you're betting on the idea. And if you can't right. trust, you know, you're going to make some bad bets. Right? You're going to make bets on people that screw up. You're going to make bets on ideas that weren't so great. But mostly you're going to make bets on people that screw up and people who don't. And trying to go in there and the best way I can explain this is a lot of founders are not conventional business people. They find ways to make things work uh, in spite of other obstacles, whether they're some of those obstacles are self-imposed. Right, you know, a lot of brilliant people uh, can also be very difficult or have shortfalls in other areas. It doesn't make them bad founders. It just means they usually, if they've gotten to this point, they've come up with their own coping mechanisms for how to deal with that. If you go in there and you start messing with that, now you've thrown the whole system out of whack. That's my opinion, right? I cannot manage a company the way my investor would manage my company. I'm a different person. I have different strengths and weaknesses. That person starts coming in and trying to tell me what to do. It's not going to go well because I'm not going to be put in a box with decisions that I'm not comfortable with that I don't have an easy or a known way of compensating for. Whereas if I have my own little screw up, I, oh yeah, I did that 10 years ago. That was stupid. I'm going to fix it. Here's how I fix it then. Yep. You're messing with that process. And I... I feel like if you don't have that confidence in the people and in the business, don't invest. Right. Right. Yeah. Stay yeah. out. And if enough people stay yeah. out, the company can't raise money, and that's the way it goes. But, but investing and thinking you're going to go in there and dictate, you know, control or or even heavy influence, I think yeah. is a recipe for disaster. Personally. Yeah, I mean, we we obviously we're seated in Series A stage investors at the at, at the first check into a company, so we care so much about that relationship with the founder, and often we invest in second time founders or third time founders, you know, because they they just you're on the same page a lot faster. But if we're investing in a first time founder, we never try to take control stances like that. We only try to give guidance and. And we, you know, we hope we try to find founders that know where their own holes are and know where they need help and are willing and, and open to to guidance. But ultimately, we want it to be their their call. You know, they're the ones running it. They're the ones we're making the bet on. So, um, so I think that's a big big part of it. And 
in, you know, the term sheets really only the only terms we ever change in a term sheet are the economic ones that only reflect the environment or where the stage of the company is at. And that's the only thing we ever really, uh, you know, Preston, we always want pro rata rights, right? For, so for those that don't know, it just allows you to continue to reinvest in the company if there's another round uh, so you don't get diluted. Um, we ask for information rights so we know what's going on. We don't take board seats uh, unless we're asked to. We don't take control positions and, you know, and, and uh, I mean, those are really the main things we focus I mean, on. The, the board seats are board seats. And, you know, of course, investors are, are going to want board seats and whatnot. Where I, you know, one thing that I saw were, uh, and I, you know, I've seen other companies, side letters that require, um, hiring certain people as a condition of, of getting the investment. Oh, wow. I have not um, seen that. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, uh, right. And so now you've, you've now, in theory, maybe that's helpful, but in practice, it's often, again, you're, you're, you're interfering with the organic development of, of that company's culture and team and um, creating some perverse performance incentives. It's just, awkward yeah it, it and actually i'll say one other thing and then and then we can sort of wrap up here but i you know we the only other thing we sometimes demand is we want to make sure that the founders are incentivized and if we see that their that their equity is not in line with with where the company is then you need to figure out a recap or you need to figure out a top-up for the founders and that there is some pain there for the other investors and board members sometimes but for us it's like if people if everyone's not willing to come together on that know who the leaders are and make sure that they're all, we're all aligned then we don't want to invest in it because we don't want to get in a weird governance situation and lose the founder who we chose that was the whole reason we invested um because they don't want to be there anymore but you know that that's sort of the only thing we get really picky about um from a term sheet perspective. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hans, Oleg, uh, Howard, any any other thoughts or advice or, or, or uh, interesting trends in the term sheet world right now before we wrap up? Well, look, I think maybe Oleg said it well when, um, you know, and when he pointed out that what I did with the, the, the AI earlier represents kind of the last couple of years, I, I do think while there's a push, certainly a push for transparency, there's going to be challenges, as, as particularly if the economic uh, macro situation deteriorates further, as, as investors are going to try and, and take advantage of that in some cases. And, and yeah, we've talked about the pros and cons of that, and mainly the cons, and I think we're all aligned on that. But it's something we, yeah, <laughs> it's something that's going to be out there. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time. I think this was super interesting to get all of your perspectives on, on the travel and on the, on the deal terms. Thank you. Thanks, Paige. Thanks for arranging this. Great. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks. <laughs>